Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 5. To Cody and to our praise team, thank you for leading us, not just in worship to sing songs that remind us of various things, but to lead us in singing the song of God's gospel. Started off by singing, as all creation should, stand and sing about hallelujah, how great is our God. And then we sang about how great thou art, which is a song we haven't sung in a while. And we need to remember that because it puts us into our proper perspective, lets us know that we are sinners in need of his mercy alone, and he has provided that mercy in Christ, our sure and steady anchor. So thank you for leading us in proclaiming the gospel through song this morning. I hope you've had time to find your way to to Revelation 15 in verse 5 as we continue our study. Would you just follow along? As I read this text, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll see where we're going to go. So, Revelation chapter 15, verse 5, John tells us, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go. And pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, thank you for this time of worship and thank you for the word that you have given to us, the word that you have preserved for us, the word that reveals your goodness and your mercy and your power and your sovereignty and your might and also reveals to us the great need that we have as sinful creatures. It also reveals to us the the beauty and glory of Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who lived for us, who died on the cross to pay the price for our sin, and who was raised from death by your power to show that he had accomplished everything that he had set out to accomplish, and now he sits at your right hand awaiting the day that we are reading about here in the Revelation. And so, Father, would you humble our hearts by this gospel truth, remind us that were it not for your mercy and kindness, we would be the recipients of your your judgment and wrath. But would you also press home to those here who don't know you, would you press home to them that there is a day coming when you will, in your justness and in your holiness, reveal from heaven your judgment upon the sins of mankind. And would you today prepare our hearts for that? Would you accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word? Help us to know what your word says and also what it means and help us to live in response to it. That's my prayer. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that there are laws 
There are laws that govern actions, your actions, all of our actions at this very moment. And these are laws that we are completely powerless to undo. We like to think of ourselves as free, right? We like to think of ourselves as able to do whatever we want to do. But there are laws, unbreakable, unavoidable laws that are keeping us bound in this very moment. For instance, if I were to take any of you and lift you up off the ground, let's say 15 feet, and then release you, what would happen? You would fall. Why? Because gravity, a law of nature, would, would pull you in. It would, it would subject you to its forces. And though we can, yes, momentarily Uh, fight against the force of gravity, we know the saying, sooner or later what goes up must come down. There are laws that we cannot avoid. And that's not the only law that's governing us. There's other laws, like the law of biology. And we are in a place within our culture where the laws of biology are being attacked by a small and radical group of people who are teaching and demanding that we accept the idea that by changing one's pronouns and administering synthetic hormones and modifying someone's appearance through surgery that we can free ourselves from the law of human biology. And they are terribly wrong. And like the little child at the conclusion of the emperor has new, clo- has new clothes, it's time that we not only recognize that they are wrong, but be willing to speak out and say that the emperor is not wearing anything at all. It's a farce. We are powerless to free ourselves from the laws of nature. And though we can change the outward appearance, we are powerless to free ourselves from the law of human biology. But there are some laws that we can and do break all the time. How many of you drove the speed limit the entire time you were on the road on your way to church this morning? No one's raising their hand. That's kind of what I expected. And I know that Sunday is a difficult day. For whatever reason, it's a challenging day to get everybody up, to get everybody fed, to get everybody cleaned and with you know, both shoes on their feet and out the door without a fight ensuing. So how many of you would be willing to admit that you didn't break one of God's commands this morning before you made your way? Kind of what I expected. In God's wisdom, he has given us the ability to disobey some laws while not allowing us to disobey others. But just because we have the ability to choose whether or not we're going to obey one of God's laws doesn't mean that there will be no consequences when we do choose to disobey. God's law reveals his will for human behavior and it serves as the standard by which he will judge all of mankind. And as we continue in our study here in the Revelation, we're seeing this new element come into view. And the new element that we see come into view, it's one that we've actually seen, but it's being described to us in a new way. We're seeing the sanctuary of the tent of witness come into view here. 
And chapter 15 of the Revelation is the only place in in the book that we see that particular language being used. And the language is such that it paints a picture to us. It helps us to understand what this vision of all of these bowls is, is about. The tent of witness, some of you already know this because you know your Old Testament well, the tent of witness contains the written copy of God's law. And when the angels come out of this sanctuary, when they come out of this place, they are coming out, the vision is telling us that they are coming out bearing God's law and they are equipped to dispense God's judgment upon humanity for having broken that law. That's what this imagery is all about. This new vision is about the fullness of God's wrath and judgment being poured out upon the world. As we've studied through the Revelation, we've seen pictures of this in in small instances, and then it grows, and now we see it in its fullness. First, the seals were broken, revealing that God had a plan to dispense his judgment upon the sins of humanity. And then the trumpets were blown, which was a warning that God's judgment was coming. And now the time has come for the bowls of God's wrath to be poured out upon the, the earth, upon all of humanity. That's the progression that we've seen as we've studied through the Revelation. And in our time together this morning, we're not going to get into the bowls. We'll get into those in the weeks coming. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to understand what we're about to study. And we're going to examine the judgment of God. And we're going to examine it from three different perspectives. We're going to look at the character of God's judgment. We're going to look at the distributors of God's judgment. And then the instruments of God's judgment. So the character of God's judgment is the first thing we're going to see. Look back at verse 5. John says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Now Revelation 15 and 16 teach us about the essential character of God's wrath. And these chapters, as we saw last week, and, and really throughout the Revelation, these chapters draw our attention back to the Exodus account. So much has been made in John's visions about looking back to that particular instance in the life of God's people and showing how that served as something of a pattern for how God is going to work in the future and even how God is working today. The plagues that these angels are about to pour out, they they remind us of the plagues in Egypt. And the plagues in Egypt were not simply a display of God's power, they were also a display of God's judgment upon one particular nation and the sin of that nation as they oppressed the people of God. So we're talking about Pharaoh and Egypt. God's judgment was poured out upon Egypt and it serves as a pattern for us to understand how God saves his people and how God punishes those who oppress his people. Now, one plague follows after another, just as one bowl follows after the one before it. And at each turn, God is unleashing some some form of his judgment upon mankind. He's punishing sin, and by extension, he is moving his people closer and closer and closer to their final deliverance, their final redemption. And through it all, God maintains his position as the holy and righteous judge of all the earth. Now, when we talk about 
the judgment of God, or we talk about the wrath of God, or we talk about the fierce anger of God, when we look at Scripture, and the Scriptures do not shy away from that theme at all. That theme is woven throughout the entire Bible from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation 20. And when we see God's wrath or God's judgment being described or, or being explained, we see it being tied to something. God's wrath and his anger at sin is tied to the fact that God is holy and God is just. Constantly we see this. In fact, of all the attributes of God that are described and revealed to us in Scripture, it seems to me that his wrath is a secondary attribute. And here's what I mean by that. His wrath is tied, or his judgment is tied to the fact that he is just, and it is a response to the sins of humanity. So much that you could say, if there were no sin against God, there would be no need for God to unleash his wrath. And therefore, wrath is a secondary attribute. But now that sin has entered into creation, now that sin has affected all of humanity, now that even the creation groans under the weight of what sin has brought, the wrath of God, we are told, is being stored up in heaven, and one day it's going to be unleashed upon the earth. The judgment of God is not simply tied to his holiness and justice, but, but as an extension of that, we see that the judgment of God is tied to his law and to the commands that flow out of him as a holy and righteous judge. And you can see this all the way back in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve were punished in Genesis 3. They fell under a curse. Why? Because they disobeyed one of God's commands. They disobeyed the law of God. And having broken God's law, having transgressed the boundaries of God's law, now punishment was necessary. The discipline of God and the judgment of God, all the way back to Genesis 3, and throughout the Bible and throughout the history of humanity, the judgment of God is going to be dispensed in exact proportion to the sin that man has committed. When we break the law of God, when we transgress the commandments of God, the Bible tells us that we can expect that divine justice is going to come and balance out the scales. No human being has the ability to argue against God and say, why have you punished me in this way? It's our sin that has brought about his holy and just response. And here in Revelation 15, the justice of God is about to be unleashed in the most complete, in the, the fullest expression that we've seen in all of Scripture. And before the angels that are, that are going to be the distributors of this, before these angels come forth and do God's bidding, the scene is dominated by this particular place, the sanctuary of the tent of witness. Now, some translations, maybe the one that you're looking at right now, it, it might say something different. It might say something like the, the tabernacle of the testimony or the, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony or some variation of those terms. It's actually a little bit cumbersome to explain it, but basically what it's talking about, the bottom line here, is this is a reference to the inner portion of the temple of God which contains the testimony or the, the witness that exists for God. Now, we know that as we've been studying the Revelation, there is the, the actual temple of God in the presence of God in heaven, 
And then there was this earth-scale model of a temple and a tabernacle that the Israelites were required to build. And we've studied how the temple has taken a different shape. And today, the New Testament makes very clear that we, the body of Christ, those who believe in Jesus, are filled with the Spirit of God, and we are the temple of God on earth. But this is a picture of heaven. This is a picture of this particular place in the heavenly realm. And we sometimes refer to this thing that's being described here as the holy of holies, right? We refer to it as that inner sanctuary, the most holy place. And you remember what's in that most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant of God. And there are angels who guard over that Ark. And inside that Ark are certain things and the most maybe the most dominant or the most memorable item that's inside that Ark is the written copy of the law of God that was given to his people. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing this group of angels come out of that place. They've come out of that place where the law of God is. They've come out of that place where the mercy of God is dispensed year after year in the the atoning sacrifices where the blood is spilt. But that's what we're looking at. And they're coming out of this place equipped to do what the testimony or the written law of God demands that they do. The Ten Commandments, you may remember, were given to the people of God. They were given to Moses specifically, and God describes it in this way in Exodus 31. God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave to him the two tablets of the testimony. There's the language that we're seeing here. The tablets of stone that were written with the very finger of God. Now, as we think about the Ten Commandments, what do we think about? Well, we think about what they represent, I hope. It's not the totality of the law of God, because as we read the Old Testament, we realize that there are laws upon laws upon laws. There's all kinds of different things that God said to his people to help them understand how they relate to him, how they relate to one another, and how they relate to the world. But the Ten Commandments served as a summary of God's righteous will for his people. They didn't contain all the laws, but they served as a witness to hold Israel accountable to the covenant that they had made with God. There's this covenant relationship, and the law serves to hold them accountable to it. And you might remember this, that if they were faithful to keep the law and to do it, God says, I will surely bless you. But if they were faithless and they transgressed the law of God, he would discipline them And eventually, he would bring judgment upon them for their sin. And that's just a little picture of how God is going to apply his law to the lives of his people. And what we're seeing in the Revelation is when we zoom out, we're now understanding that God is going to apply that picture of the law, not just to his people and not just to Egypt, but to all of humanity. This inner sanctuary, I mentioned it earlier, not only does it hold the ark where the Ten Commandments are stored, but it also holds the mercy seat where sacrifices were made on behalf of the people. Do y'all remember this? The, The Day of Atonement. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, would be able to go into this place and bring a sacrifice and pour out the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat so that the people of God could have their sin atoned for and they could maintain their relationship with God through the covenant that he had given them. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, we know this. 
There's no longer sacrifices that are being made over and over and over again. That has come to an end, and it's come to an end because Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, came and he gave his life, and his blood is more precious than any other sacrifice, and he has given the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The blood of the sacrifice that covers the mercy seat of God has been poured out by Christ. And so, It's not wrong to say this, and we need to understand this in this gospel age. As these angels come out to dispense God's judgment in reflection of the law of God, those who have broken the law of God, they are also coming out to pour out God's judgment in those who have rejected the Son of God and the atonement that was made within this inner sanctuary. The gospel is still the measuring stick along with the law of God for whether or not someone has been reconciled to the Father. So I know that's a lot. There's a lot going on in this picture. And John just reads it and moves on. But I wanted us to understand something of the character of God's judgment. As God begins and as God prepares to unleash his wrath upon the world, there is a source for that wrath, and he is the source for that wrath. And there was even a written testimony given to humanity so that we could see what our creator demands of us. And we have the gospel message, which tells us how we can be reconciled to God. And so anyone who receives in their bodies the, the judgment of God, they've had full warning through the testimony and the written word. But in this vision, the mercy of God that's extended through Christ, according to this, is no longer being offered from the sanctuary. The only thing that's coming out of this sanctuary at this particular time is the judgment of God, which means that the world of man will be judged by the testimony of God's law and by the witness of Christ's blood. Judgment will fall upon all who have sinned and rejected the gospel of Jesus. The time of God's mercy has come to an end in this vision, and the time for God to execute judgment has finally come. And that's just a a thumbnail sketch of the character of this judgment. But now let's look at the distributors of this judgment. Look at verse 6. And out of the sanctuary, out of this place where all of this truth is represented, out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. So here we see seven angels, seven created spiritual beings. They come through the open curtain of the Holy of Holies, and it's almost like they've been inside studying the law of God and and studying the the sacrifice of Christ so that that they know the measuring stick that they're going to use as they come out to be the distributors of God's judgment upon the world, and that's what they're doing. They are the the tools. They are the instruments. They are the, the distributors of God's wrath in this particular case. And they carry with them seven plagues, which is a word that's not used that often. It's used throughout the the revelation, but usually when we see it in the scriptures, it's referring back again to that, that time in the Exodus when God poured out his judgment upon Egypt in these in that series of plagues and that series of punishments that he unleashed upon them. And there's this paradigm, there's this story, right? God's people are being oppressed in Egypt, and and they cry out for God's help, and God comes to them, and he purifies his people, but he also judges their tormentors. 
And now what we're seeing is the same thing happening in the Revelation, just on a larger scale. The church of God, the believers in Christ, those who are faithful to Jesus are being persecuted throughout the world. And God is coming to protect them, to purify his bride. That's why the seven letters were given to us at the beginning of this book. But not only is he going to purify his church and bring us into his presence, but now he's going to pour out his judgment upon the earth, those who reject him, those who oppress his people. So those two pictures are being cast in front of us here so that we can understand and have a good picture here. Uh, these, the mention of these plagues brings us all the way back to see that God displayed his judgment on one wicked nation, but here in the Revelation we're seeing God display his judgment on the whole of the earth. And if we can kind of remember what happened back there in those plagues in Egypt, and we can think about what this is going to look like in reality, we can, we can have something of a scope to understand. In Egypt, God poured out his judgment upon the land. He destroyed all of the crops. He poured his judgment out upon the livestock. He, he poured his judgment out upon all the people. And then finally, he poured his judgment out upon the king. There was not a human that, was, that could avoid the judgment of God, save for those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And that's going to be the picture that we cast forward into the judgment of God that is to come. And the last plague, the last plague where God poured out his particular wrath upon the firstborn, that's just a foretaste of the actual final judgment when God is not just going to pour out his wrath upon the firstborn, but he's going to pour out his wrath upon all of humanity. Let those pictures guide you because that's what Paul is, I mean, not Paul, but John is doing here. He's allowing the Exodus account to stand as a a testimony to what's going to happen in the end. And as these angels come and as they, they wield their plagues, the only ones who are going to be standing again are those whose, whose lives and homes and hearts are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb, covered by the blood of Jesus. But look at these angels. Let's, let's understand something about them. They're dressed like priests, right? They have these pure linen garments and they have golden sashes around their chests. And this is priestly garments, right? They are serving as uh, mediators between God and men. And their garments are pure, which tells us that the work that they're coming to do is also going to be morally pure and absolutely righteous. They are carrying out the will and purpose of our holy God. But there's another group of beings that are here. We've seen them before. Look at verse 7. It says, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now these four living creatures, you kind of remember who they are, right? We've, we've seen these different like categories of created spiritual beings, and, and these are those spiritual beings that, that stay in proximity, the closest proximity to the actual throne of God. And we don't just see them in the Revelation, we see them all the way back in the Old Testament. We see them in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah comes into the temple and the the train of God's robe fills the temple and these four living beings are there and one of them brings a, a coal from the fire and touches Isaiah's lips to cleanse him from his sin. It's the same beings that we see in Ezekiel when the the throne of God is moving and it's moving away from Jerusalem. Because God's presence is leaving his people because they continually sin and break his covenant and he's moving. And it's these four living beings that we see around the mobile throne of God, if you will. And it's the same beings that we saw in Revelation 4 and 5. 
So we've seen them before. These beings stand before the throne of God. As Jesus opened the seven seals, it was these beings who spoke to declare what was going to unfold. They joined in the angels and the elders when they fell on their faces and worshiped God at particular times throughout the revelation. And here we see one of them, just one of them, is going to give to these angels as they come out of the inner temple or the inner sanctuary, he gives to them these bowls full of the wrath of God. These same angels come out motivated by the testimony of God's law and God's gospel, and they serve to distribute his wrath upon the earth. But notice that they're each given a golden bowl. And what does that mean? Right? So we've looked a little bit at the, the character of God's judgment, and now we've seen something of the distributors of God's judgment. Well, what about these tools, these instruments of God's judgment? The purpose of the bowls, it also comes from the Old Testament. It comes from this temple language. This, the, these bowls were used by the priest who served in the altar. And they, they were used in, in a bunch of different ways. Sometimes these bowls were used to carry ashes. Sometimes these bowls were used to carry the fat of sacrifices. These bowls or these basins were even used to carry the blood of sacrifices that were thrown against the side of the altar. So we've seen them if we know our Old Testament, if we've studied that, we've seen them, but they didn't play a real prominent role. They were just instruments that helped the priests to accomplish their purpose. And what was inside of them was what was important, not the bowls themselves necessarily. And that's why they stand out here, because it's not the bowls that are important, it's what they hold. What exactly do they hold? They hold the wrath of God. They are filled with the wrath of God. And the purpose of these bowls, whether they're holding ashes or fat or blood, is to be poured out. And so we understand that these things are about to be poured out upon humanity. The wrath of God is about to be poured out. And there's an Old Testament picture that helps us to understand this. In Isaiah chapter 51 where it talks about God's wrath filling a cup and, and a group of people are made to drink that wrath all the way to its dregs. And you might be surprised to know that in that particular case, it was Israel who was called upon to drink the wrath of God. Here's the text. This is Isaiah 51 and it starts in verse 17. He says, this is God speaking through the prophet, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And God is pouring out his judgment, his disciplinary judgment upon his own people in this particular case. And they're in, in bondage, in, in exile at this point. But then he says this in verse 22 of the same chapter. But behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, and you will drink it no more, but I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. Sounds a little bit like the picture that we saw in Egypt right? All the way back there in the Exodus account. In this particular case, what does all this mean? In this particular case in Isaiah, God punished Israel for failing to keep his covenant. And then after punishing them, he set out to punish Babylon for tormenting and oppressing his people. And here in Revelation, we see that same pattern that was established in Egypt, that pattern that was revealed in the exile of God's people in the Old Covenant. Now we see it again, that it's coming in the judgment that is to come, that God's wrath is being stored up in heaven, and the judgment will begin with the household of God, and then after that, it's going to be poured out upon the whole of the world. 
This is a sobering picture. This is a challenging passage of Scripture to study. But here's what it's telling us. The anger of God has been provoked. And the justice of God is due. And the sin of mankind has reached the limits of his patience and his mercy. The time has come for the judge of all the earth to do what is right. And even the sanctuary shows signs that that final day has come. No one can get back into the temple. Because the wrath of God, the smoke of God's wrath and his power is filling it. That's what it says here in verse 8. The sanctuary was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished. So until the judgment of God is, is complete, no one is able to come. And that picture of the, the smoke of God's presence, that's a, that's a common phrase that we see in, in the Old Covenant. We talk about it as the Shekinah glory of God, and here it's being depicted at the, as the anger of God. The anger of God has been provoked here. The smoke is telling us that God is present and he's not going to allow anyone in until he has accomplished his purpose. Okay, so we've seen some pretty sobering things. The character of God's judgment, the distributors of God's judgment, the instruments of God's judgment. And we're not going to study the bowls today. We'll get into those in the weeks to come and we'll see what that's going to look like. It's going to look familiar but it's also going to be a a full expression of God's judgment. But what can we take away from this sermon today? What, What can we go away from this place believing and understanding? A few thoughts. Number one, I've said it multiple times, comes straight out of the Old Testament. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. There is probably no Christian doctrine more offensive to our culture than the doctrine of the justice and wrath of God. Maybe you would agree, maybe not. But even within the church, this doctrine is diminished, it's avoided, it is denied. The doctrine of divine justice is something that a lot of Christians, professing Christians, and even pastors don't want to talk about. They don't want to be compared to those old, you know, uh, hellfire and brimstone preachers, which, okay, I'll take that if that's what you want to throw at me. But here's the thing that I want us to see as we study through the scriptures. You cannot make sense of the story of the Bible without understanding the justice and wrath of God. You simply can't. And if you remove that from it, you no longer have good news. You no longer have a, a, a need for the gospel, The justice of God, the wrath of God, is fundamental to the biblical story. We see it as early as Genesis, and it doesn't come to an end until Revelation 20, as I've already said. And the whole Bible is showing us that God's justice and God's wrath are not only a reality, but they are a fair response to the sin of mankind. Romans 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. This is not the arbitrary anger of a provoked deity. This is the just response of our creator to his creation's rebellion. And the Bible tells us that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. He's been doing what is right throughout the Old Testament, even in those passages that many don't want to talk about, like Genesis 6, 
and the flood that where God poured out his judgment upon the earth in a flood. That was a display of God's justice and wrath. The sacrificial system is just filled with blood and it's filled with an understanding of the sin of humanity and the fact that there has to be an atoning sacrifice for that. The, the sacrificial system is a display of God's justice and wrath. What a lot of... Uh, what a lot of individuals want to use to argue against the justice and holiness of God, the Israelite wars against the pagan nations. God's instruments of judgment upon the earth were his people, and God was dispensing divine justice and wrath upon those pagan nations. The Canaanite wars. And by the way, the cross of Christ is about the justice and wrath of God. Because on the cross... Jesus Christ was not simply setting an example for us. He was receiving in his body the due penalty for the sins of his people. My sin, your sin, was laid upon him and he suffered the wrath of God in our place. The cross of Christ is about the justice and wrath of God. The Bible would not make sense if you took this theme out of it. God rules over his creation as the rightful and righteous judge of all the earth. And the fact that God is righteous means that he will always act in accordance with what is right because he is the standard for what is right and wrong. There's not a standard outside of God that gets to apply to God because if so, that standard would be God. But he is God. He is the standard. And we're thankful that he is a holy and a just standard. The whole discussion of God's wrath is couched in the fact that as the creator of all things, our holy God stands as the righteous judge over all that he has made, and he will do what is right. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. So as uncomfortable as this discussion of judgment might make you feel, understand this truth. But there's more. God's wrath is just. Some might ask, what sin could be so bad that it required such a severe punishment from God? Have you ever heard that before as you debated an atheist or someone who just rejects the gospel? This is a common question that naturally comes to our minds because we can't imagine that we might do something that would necessitate the wrath of God in hell, right? We have this aversion to this idea that something we've done could be so bad that it would require the just punishment of hell. But the scriptures turn the question around and ask it this way. How great is the sin of man that a holy and just God must pour out such a severe punishment to balance the scales of divine justice? We have sinned against our creator. We have sinned against a being so holy that we can't fully comprehend it. We have sinned against our righteous God and the punishment is, uh, is, is severe enough that it balances out the scales of our offense. We like to think of our sin as something small. And when we do that, we think of God's punishment as something that's out of bounds, and the Bible says, no, don't look at your sin as something small. Understand the greatness of your God, and then your sin will make sense to you. And his punishment 
will be understood to be a just balancing of the scales. Don't have a high view of yourself and assume that God's response is in some way out of balance. Have a higher view of God and recognize that your sin against him is so great that that's what it requires. God's wrath is just. And then here's the final thing. And after all that, we need to hear this. God's gift is eternal life in Christ. Judgment is not a reality for everyone in the sense of God's wrath being poured out. Judgment is a reality in that every sin committed will be punished accordingly. But there's only two ways that that sin is going to be covered over. Either you and I or individuals who've sinned against God will receive in their flesh the due penalty of their sin or we will take refuge in the one who came to receive God's penalty on our behalf, and that is Christ. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And here's the thing that we can all say together, if you're a believer, all of us deserve this wrath. All of us, by our sin and rebellion, have earned God's judgment, but our God, who is holy and just, is also merciful and kind, and he has provided a way for sinners like you and me to escape from this punishment. And that escape is to put our hope and our trust in Christ alone. Either we will pay the price for our sin in eternity or Christ paid that price on the cross. There is, one one of my favorite authors writes this way. This is Jared Wilson from his book, The Storytelling God. He's a young guy. He's still alive. He's not one of those old dead guys that we like to quote. But he says this, there is a glad escape from the eternal condemnation in the safety of the Savior who has taken that condemnation for us upon himself and by doing so has conquered both death and hell, even for you, if you want him. So would you respond appropriately with me by praying and thanking God for his mercy and kindness or maybe by receiving it today? Father, I do thank you for your word and I thank you that Even the hard things, the difficult things, the challenging things, like this passage, you haven't withheld them from us. You've given us the truth. You haven't withheld from us the things that would wound us in the appropriate ways, but they wound us because we need to be wounded so that we will run to the rescue that you have provided. And so, Father, help us to wrestle with these truths, but to accept them that the judge of all the earth will do what is right, that your wrath is divine justice being poured out and your mercy and kindness has been displayed through Christ and we can receive him today. And so, Father, I pray that you would accomplish your purpose in our response to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.